Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Welcome, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. Welcome to the program, Everything Co-op. This month, we are celebrating National Native American Heritage Month, and we're having our second voice. It is Bajiba Ruth Bige. Good morning, Bajiba. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being on. Where are you this morning? What part of the world? I am currently in Flagstaff, Arizona, but um, our organization is based in New Mexico. Albuquerque, New Mexico. Albuquerque, New Mexico, that's right. And you are indigenous, Native American. What tribe are you with? Am. So I'm an enrolled member of the Navajo Nation. If you don't mind, I would like to do my traditional introduction. Okay. Um, just for listeners back home, I understood that. Yes, that's Navajo Nation language. Is that what you? It is. What is it, it called? Is. What's the language called? It's um, Dinabizad. So uh, last week we had a lady in from Zuni, and their language went back seven thousand years. How uh-huh. far back did yours go? I don't know. That's a good question. Uh, according to our origin stories, it came from talking gods, so the wind, as far back as the wind. Oh, that might be more than 7,000 years. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. The wind brought the language. Great. So the Navajo Nation had a lot of, in the news, a lot with the COVID tremendous pre-existing conditions. Uh, I, it sounds like worse than African-American cultures. We have really bad with diabetes and hypertension and so forth in the neighborhoods and people don't have health care. What, what was it like in the Navajo Nation? With oh, COVID? man. Scary. Really terrifying, to be perfectly honest. We live in very isolated and rural communities. And, yeah, gosh, People were buying bulk off of the shelves and for communities that depend on buying bulk, going into town and not being able to find food, um, knowing that water was, you know, instrumental to fighting off, you know, the pandemic, not having access to water was scary. We have a lot of intergenerational homes. So the fear of your child getting sick or your grandparent getting sick, you know, inadvertently. So all of it was a test, truly. A test? A test of resilience, of community, of, um, yeah, I'm going to say resilience. Okay. Okay. Uh, I, I see it as a huge test, scary test. Um, and when you say intergenerational, uh, that's children, parents, grandparents, maybe even great-grandparents living in the same household. Yeah. And without access to water? Without access to running water, yes. 
so it's hard to clean the house and wash hands. They said wash your hands often. If you don't have running water, how do you do that? Okay. Yeah. So let, let's move away from that because I'm, that, that's really scary on my back. I, that's awful. So tell me about your growing up, though. Where, where did you grow up and where did you go to school? I grew up in a small community called Coalmine Mesa. It's in Coalmine Canyon on the Navajo Nation. Um, and I went to school in a little bit of a bigger community, Tuba City, Arizona. And, um, yeah, that's where I grew up on the Navajo Nation. So in your schools, was it um, public, American public school or Navajo Nation public school? So I went to both um, a Bureau of Indian Affairs school, a BIA school, and I went to a state school. They were right next to each other. They actually had been one school, um, and they split off and became two different schools. So I would hop the fence <laughs> to uh, take my Spanish classes at the state school, and then I would hop back over to go to my federal Indian classes at the BIA school. In either of the schools, did they teach the Navajo Nation culture or language or history? They do, yes. Both schools did. That was part of the education system they provided, um, K through 12. So we got, I wouldn't call it immersion, um, but language classes were a major part of that. So you learned a language like your normal introduction that you did at first, your Navajo Nation language introduction in the schools. Did you, did you all uh, speak the language in your homes too? Um, my community, so I came from a very traditional home, and English was not our first language. It was something that when we moved from Pinyon, Arizona, to uh, Tuba City for school, that I picked up more um, English, but there's a history of boarding schools and um, my dad in realizing that we were not English speakers chose to speak to us just in English. So I lost a lot of it and he thought that was a good way to help us succeed in the educational system. Okay, so you lost a lot of your natural traditional traditional language when you picked up English your father felt like that's the way that you can be successful in this culture in this overall huge larger culture in yeah. particular school so what about college you went K through 12 I, okay. I went off to the University of Arizona um, and I had these aspirations of becoming a lawyer and I ended up in youth development and that youth development work actually took me all over. I went to uh, Costa Rica, I went to Mongolia, and um, yeah, I got to go back home with that initiative, so. Youth development, what is yeah. youth development? What is that, is there a major called youth development? It was through the um, Family Consumer Sciences, so youth development was a focus of theirs. I got to work with um, Governor Napolitano and the director of the department, Lynn Borden, and uh, that work led me to um, becoming a program director through Cooperative Extension and uh, took me right back home, and I got to work with um, high school-age students that were considered at risk. Okay. So you were high school age, working with high school age. Got it. <laughs> okay. You're, you're a little bit older than them. <laughs> that reminds me of my first year of teaching uh, college. Um, 
Well, my first year of teaching, I was 21 teaching 16-year-olds, and they tried me. And then the second year of teaching, I was teaching in New York at City University. I was 24 teaching people younger and older than me in the class. And so sometimes it's harder to get respect and get control of these class when you're their age or a little bit older. So I got it. (laughs) But why co-ops? Why did you get into co-ops? I had moved back east for a while, and co-ops are everywhere back east. I had come back to the Navajo Nation um, to raise my family, and it was right when the pandemic hit. So being on the Navajo Nation at the time, um, I grew up in a community that is called the Bennett Freeze, and it was frozen to development. Um, And it was frozen to development by uh, Senator Bennett in 1966. And the idea was that by freezing the land to development, it would force negotiations between the Navajo and Hopi people. And that development was supposed to, that freeze on development was only supposed to last about two to four years. Um, And it went, I think, 53 years, something like that, well into 2009. And because of that freeze, there's no infrastructure, literally no infrastructure. If people had a hole in their roof, if their door was falling off, if they needed a window, you know, that was forbidden. So we had a lot of dilapidated homes, access to food, childcare, you name it. And the pandemic came along and our government shut down, which for us was a huge shock. We had this idea that there were going to be resources that were going to come in. We kind of looked out for FEMA for a while and nobody came. Really, nobody came. Can I get you to hold a sec? I'm sorry. So you moved back from the East Coast with your family. How how many many people in your family? I have three children. Three children. How old are they? They are three, five, and nine now. Three, five, and nine now, you moved back, right, uh, February or March or whatever in 2020, right before the pandemic, and you move into a community called Bennett Freeze where you can't do any development. You can't fix doors. When I don't even think of fixing doors as development. I think of that as maintenance. I think of development as building new houses, building new infrastructure, putting in roads and sewage and water lines and all. I think of that as development the kind of thing that uh, President Biden is talking about doing. So there's none of that going on. And then you hit this pandemic and you say to me that the government closed down. Well, the government is that the uh, Navajo government or the Indian affairs or all of the above? That was the Navajo Nation. The Navajo Nation shut down and we had shelter in place orders. Um, So there were heavy fines if We left outside of curfew. People weren't allowed to come into the Navajo Nation. Um, That really restricted our ability to get aid from outside organizations. Eventually, you know, we had to take it upon ourselves to find those resources. So where does co-ops fit into all of this? So co-ops fit into this um, as an economic development opportunity. You know, co-ops, when we took a hard look at where our communities were with the lack of infrastructure, with the lack of resources, businesses, all of it, you know, from the ground up, we had to come together. 
co-ops provided us with an opportunity to pool our resources together and to really, you know, find a thriving model that fits inherently with our community needs. But also, you know, we're talking about um, sovereignty and self-determination, decades of forest removal, land dispossession, economic underdevelopment have really hindered our ability to um, develop businesses to thrive. And um, the co-op model fits beautifully with the idea that we can determine how we govern ourselves. So determine, determine, I got determined how we govern ourselves. Yes. Okay. All right. So you're sitting there, COVID's coming on. You don't have the resources The the uh, Navajo nation closes down, put on curfews and nobody's coming to your aid. So somewhere you've got to, as a community, You've got to be able to solve major issues, major problems. And this is what co-ops do. They solve community problems. Um, mm -hmm. Wow. How did you hear about the co-op model, though? From back east, actually. I, I was back east, and I signed up with a credit union, not knowing anything about credit unions. And I loved it. And then I found a grocery store, and it became like a second family for me. And then I was looking for childcare, and um, I had some friends who had put their children in a cooperative daycare, and it was beautiful. And I thought, you know, my idea was typical thinking that um, Sam's Club was a cooperative. You know, it was very, <laughs> very minimal. Um, and there was a group of people who were coming together talking about. I'm sorry, energy. I'm sorry to cut you, but we got to take our first break here. I'm so sorry. We'll, we'll come right back. I really want to hear more about this, what happened in New York and how you brought it back. We'll be right back. Don't touch that dial. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome back. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Co-op. We're celebrating Native American Heritage Month. We have Bajiba Ruth Bigay on with us today. She's from the Navajo Nation. She's in Flagstaff, Arizona right now. The organization she's with, the Cooperative Catalyst of New Mexico, is out of, out of Albuquerque, New Mexico. Before we took the break, she was talking about how she learned about co-ops in back east so I want, to, I want to go back to that but before that she was telling the sad story of how bad things were and to some extent still are at the Navajo nations no water um, from 43 years from 2000 from 1966 to 2009 there was a, a, a problem where they could not even fix doors if they broke and and so with the, with COVID-19 Nobody came to their aid. The Navajo Nation shut down, put down a curfew, and folks was living in a house with multi-generational. And, and a very, very sad story. So we have another sad story. Um, Chuck Snyder, the president of National Cooperative Bank, passed away last Saturday. Chuck was very instrumental in the start of this program eight years ago. And every year they're out. Uh, supporting us financially, the bank did, and also with ideas, um, started an advisory committee, which he sat on. 
So next week we're going to have the show where we're just going to honor Chuck and have people call in that knew him and talk about how he affected their life and their community. BJ, um, I have it that if if Chuck could have come to the Navajo Nations and help you all, he would have done that. He was the kind of guy wherever there was a community problem, wherever there was an issue, he really supported the cooperative model as a solution. And the bank would create financial, uh, they call it creative financial uh, products to help with the different co-ops. But a great guy passed, I think, very young at 68 years old. But uh, he's much missed in this cooperative world. And like I said, we'll, we'll talk more about him next week. So what we're going to do here, matter of fact, have you done, have you all done any work with National Co-op Bank? Um, not that I'm aware of. Okay. So you were talking about back east. Where back east were you? That you you had a you joined a credit union, loved it, uh, a grocery store, and that became your family, second family, and then you found childcare where. Uh, folks brought their children in a child co cooperative, and normally the fees are a lot less. And if it's owned by the consumer, the people that work that, that that bring their kids there, then they work and they keep the price low. They may work in there also. So, where were you in New in the back east? I was in Buffalo, Buffalo, New York, and the grocery store was literally on the corner of my block. So my kids would just go over there all the time. And, it was wonderful. The produce was great. Um, a lot of the folks that we would see there were also at the farmer's market. So it was a little uh, safe haven. Okay. And so, but you grew up in Navajo Nation, Arizona, New Mexico world. Okay. How did you, did. how did you end up in New York? My mother is Tuscarora of New York. And I had my children, who you can probably actually hear in the background because there's no school today. <laughs> okay. So I do apologize. They might be jumping on here with me. My little one is just waking Please up. Please do not <laughs> apologize for young folk being young people. No, no, no. I will enjoy the sound. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the wonderful giggles, you know, when they wake up. It's the grogginess. So we're going to work through it on our end. But, yeah, no, I wanted to take my children back east to engage with community. The community there is very um, close-knit, and, oh, gosh, I miss it. It's, it's beautiful. Haudenosaunee people and the culture and life ways. Just something that I, I miss dearly. Okay. So your mother was back there, so you you moved back. You have a, a three-year-old, a five-year-old, a nine-year-old now. So you come back to home where you grew up, and right before the pandemic, and it's scary, is the word you use. Okay. Yeah, so I decided to take my children back west. Uh, my family operates a ranch, um, and they raise all-American quarter horses, and my family needed some help, and it just seemed like a good good opportunity. Um, my eldest had never really engaged with some tumbleweeds before, so that was a big shock. <laughs> And they certainly miss the green grass. But, yeah, and my family lives off-grid. Um, everybody in the community hauls their water in. Food, everything. I think the closest grocery store was about 75 miles away. And So how do you, get, how do you get groceries? Do you grow your own? 
My family does have a garden, um, but they mostly drive into town about once a week. 75 miles away. Yeah. Uh, there is one grocery store, but it doesn't provide a lot of options. There's no organic produce, nothing local. And it's it's a chain. It's been there as far back as I can remember. But um, That's it's closer. very limited. Closer than the 75 miles is the grocery Closer store? Closer than the 75 miles, yeah. You can get some basic um, supplies there, but if you really want to make sure you get everything you need, everyone usually drives in to town, which is about 75 miles. And what town is that? That's Flagstaff. So everyone drives into Flagstaff to um, get bulk items and then drives back. Okay. I've been to Flagstaff. I used to drive through Flagstaff. Okay. And Flagstaff is not far from the Grand Canyon. Is that right? Yeah. I consider the Grand Canyon my backyard. Okay. Okay, that was a big backyard. It's a big backyard. <laughs> it's a big backyard. I didn't know how big the Grand Canyon was until I flew a helicopter over it for one hour and we didn't see it all. It was phenomenal <laughs> how big the Grand Canyon is. When they say grand, it is grand. But you're food desert. If you yes. don't have uh, food that would bring the nutrients, the organic, the produce, and so forth, and you have to drive 75 miles to get that. But you have your own garden. Yeah, your we have our own garden. We're um, a pastoral society, so livestock is really um, instrumental to our communities. Sheep is life, the bebeina. Um, so my mom has a little flock, and they depend on that for meat. Now, what is the flock again? She raises churro sheep. Oh, sheep. Okay. I don't know that first name, but sheep I know. Okay. 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 A sheep, quarter horses, a garden. You haul water in. You don't have a well or anything for water. And then My family is cistern. A lot of the families just have, um, you know, water drums that they fill up and take home. Okay. I think like St. Thomas in the Virgin Islands, their their roofs, they, they would uh, catch the water off the roof and it would go into their cistern or in their basement area with how they collected water. And we oh. do live off grid, so my family has a um, solar unit, photovoltaic system that provides electricity. So everything runs off of it. Sometimes in the winter, it does get a little challenging, but that's what keeps us going. Do you have a generator backup or any type of? We do. It's a really terrible old one that my dad has had forever and always. And I'm hoping at one point, you know, we're going to get something that's a little more modern. But yeah, I fight with the generator on a regular basis in the winter. Oh, you do? Okay. <laughs> okay. So you come back and things are scary, very scary with COVID and these no resources. But your your family is, I assume, better off than most. Is that correct? And that you have they the are. We are very fortunate, um, and it's a privilege that I never forget. And I feel like it's an additional responsibility that I have to help support community. So my family lives off grid. Prior to the pandemic hitting, I took some classes with uh, Native Renewables, and they're located on the Navajo Nation, and they teach solar. So I learned how to build solar units, and that's something that I still engage in. 
um, and work with various partners. So we're doing some solar cooperative developments in the community and in surrounding communities. Okay. So we're going to come back and talk more about your cooperative development. What kinds of co-ops are you all doing there? Uh, and I got the, the co-op through what you're looking to to help solve the problems in the community, and you're looking to be able to band together and solve your problems. I got that. I appreciate that, and that's why I like co-ops. And I think co-ops are good for black people, brown people, native folks, anybody that is marginalized communities, that too often this society, this greater society of America, has put us in bad shape. But we'll be right back and talk more about what's going on out there. Please don't touch that dial. Welcome back, everybody. We have today Benjiba Ruth Bigay, who is our guest. She's a co-director of Cooperative Catalyst of New Mexico. She grew up in the Navajo Nation in the Arizona, New Mexico area. And she was telling us before we took break about her family's ranch and that they live off-grid and they're better off than most of the folks at the Navajo Nation. And she's very uh, proud of that, but also know that there's a heavy responsibility when you're given much, much as expected kind of a thing. So, Ruth, um, tell me how you got to work with the Cooperative Catalyst of New Mexico. Sandra, the previous director, she had been giving a presentation at an organization, Change Labs. Um, and if you haven't heard of Change Labs, I really suggest going out there and taking a look. Jessica Stegel and her crew are doing incredible things, including bringing um, the conversation of cooperative development into the community. So having my very superficial understanding of cooperative development from back east i went to this presentation and it was a co-op 101 and i had a million ideas <laughs> and I, I wanted to continue the conversation and i started um, the work with native renewables and their solar and i was trying to create this network and i really wanted to bring that cooperative model into my communities and um they offered me a position, and I started as a cooperative consultant and just moved up from there and really threw myself into it. Threw yourself into it. Um, okay, so if you throw yourself into something, it must be that you you love it or you see something good in it. What did you love about both the Change Lab and the Cooperative Catalyst of New Mexico that you would throw yourself into it? Um, I'm Native, I'm Indigenous, I, you know, come from a very strong traditional community that has seen, you know, the impact of the Bennett Freeze. So self-determination was really important to my family, to my community, and to our nation. You know, we didn't want to assimilate. We wanted our land bases, our values, our voices to govern in accordance with our traditional values and laws. And the cooperative model inherently supports that. You know, co-ops stabilize community because they are community-based businesses and they recycle income. They multiply local expertise and capital within a community. And to me, like 
all of those were benefits. All of those were <laughs> appealing and it made so much sense to put those things together. And for people who are working with limited resources, this essentially became the only model. We didn't have additional you know, capital coming in. We really had to pool resources and that was integral. And Jessica Stagel from Change Labs will tell you, we're really seeing, you know, she works in business development and business incubation. Um, and we're going to start focusing some of our resources and our attention on just co-ops because of the lack of resources. It has been said before that this might be the only way for us to get economic security and to exercise self-determination. I could go on. <laughs> no, I, I don't know how much time I have to talk about how beautiful I think the co-op model works with our communities and our values. So what values do your community have that, that causes the, the co-op to fit within your value system? Oh, they're so community rooted. You know, you can't do a co-op unless you have community voice. It's not a top-down approach. You have to have really close-knit relationships, a lot of communication, and it's a vision that's coming essentially, you know, from the ground up. It really is from the ground up. We don't have this, even in the nonprofit world, right? Where there's a funding source and you have to adapt to that funding source. With co-ops, we identified that there's a need. And within our community, there's a plethora of need. There's an incredible lack of resources, childcare, um, aged living care, access to food, um, access to water, who's going to oversee those water you know, development and operations. That's been a big part of it, access to um, energy. So utility cooperatives, producer cooperatives, we are largely pastoral and um, we heard communally already. So it fit within our traditional governing systems. So the challenge then became, how do we take something that has, you know, Western implications, but really does fit within our traditional governing system and marry that? Um, and we're working at Cooperative Catalyst really to find best practice around that. So you said a mouthful or two, but it really fits into why I like co-ops. So one is all of the different co-ops, whether it's child care or how do you support folks that are getting old and people to come in and work with them. You call it age living, food, water, energy, health, everything, everything you can think of and, and the whole thing of how do you get resources and people to come in and help with the infrastructure kinds of things? So there are four types of co-ops. Let me quickly go through them. The first one, if it's, it depends on who owns and controls the business. If it's owned and controlled by the employees, it's called a worker co-op. So any business you can think of, all of them that you named could be a worker co-op. But if, if it's the business is owned and controlled by the people that uses the products or services, it's called a consumer co-op. So you could have housing co-ops, credit union, food co-ops. There's a health clinic in Madison, Wisconsin that's owned by the patients, which is interesting. They set the policies and procedures. Food co-ops could be worker-owned or it could be consumer-owned. Most have been consumer-owned. And then if you get a group of people to come together or a group of businesses that come together uh, and create a business that purchased the thing that they need. The farmers have done this. Artists are doing it. They come together and buy the things that they need. Normally they, they become experts in what they need, working with vendors, creating contracts, and getting 
better quality for a lower price. And so that's called a purchasing co-op. And the fourth type is a marketing co-op, the same thing, a group of people or businesses, farmers have been doing this a lot, come together and market their products. You may have a farm in Wisconsin that does milk, and their milk may end up in New York or California with companies like Cabot Creamery, Orlando Lakes. Indian Ocean Spray is, is a marketing co-op. There is... Um, it's called Marketing or Producer, and the Zuni Artist Co-op that we had on last week was a producer marketing co-op, and there's one for black women in Pittsburgh that's a artist co-op called Ujama. So those are the four types of co-ops, and they work for all of the reasons that you were talking about. That's why I'm so glad to have you on, because when you look at the Navajo Nation and all their needs are – the capitalistic model just doesn't work because most of the capitalists just want to figure out how much money they can make. That's the number one priority, which I learned in my MBA program. What's the greatest return on investment? And that's the main way that folks would go. So what co-ops are you working on that the Cooperative Catalyst of New Mexico was working on right now? So right now, um, we just came up with a three-year intensive um, plan strategy to develop the ecosystem out here. You know, co-op development here in the Southwest does not look anything like it does back East. There's still a lot of growing and support systems that we need to put in place. So we're working with a Southwestern Indian Polytechnic Institute and they're doing um, a research project and we're assisting in that research project to understand best practice of cooperative development within indigenous communities. We intend to then take that best practice and develop these robust incubators and accelerators. And um, yeah, that's that's part of it. Uh, the other part of it that we're focused on specifically on the Navajo Nation is with um, different organizations and companies that are wanting to partner with um, cooperatives. So Navajo Power, for instance, they're developing Navajo Power Homes and it's about solar cooperative development. So we have a group of women who um, have expertise in solar who are organizing themselves into a cooperative. They don't have a, a name yet, but they are coming together and that's resource they're gonna supply. Other initiatives we're working on are around water, water development. So um, Talani Lake Enterprises worked very closely with the Navajo Nation to drill wells during the pandemic. And we worked really hard to get that into our communities, especially, you know, with the lack of access. But the question then became, who's going to oversee it? And we decided the cooperative model might be the most suitable opportunity for that. Um, access to food, food sovereignty. We live in a food desert. You know, there was just all of the breaks <laughs> in where our, our community was not situated to deal with something like a pandemic, to provide for our communities on some of the most basic level, food, housing, shelter, you know, access to electricity, all of those things. So we're taking the cooperative model and really pushing it into what else can we do? So are you familiar with, on the food side, there's a, there's a conference in about February, March timeframe. It's called Up and Coming. Up and Coming um, are are folks that are creating food co-ops. So I, I went there one year. I was going back a second year, 
And uh, no, I did go two years. They had folks from Detroit and Flint, Michigan, all over the U.S. that are, and, and mostly people of color that's creating food co-ops. Uh, there was one group from D.C. that was there to see about Washington, D.C., a, a food co-op in Southeast, which is a food desert in Washington, D.C., in our neighborhood. And so how do we take how do we take control of our neighborhood and provide the kinds of services that are needed? And I'm hearing what, what's so nice about the Navajo Nation, you are, have your land, you have your population, you have your governance, and you can control and say what happens there. You have more of a control than other neighborhoods, I should say. Don't have total. But Up and Coming is a conference that works. Now, you had mentioned about uh, working with older folks and creating some some co-ops around folks that do that. There's a, I'm missing the term, but there's a co-op in New York that's 1,500 members, which is the largest worker co-op, and they are people that go into houses and work with disabled or seniors so they can live in place longer. And these 1,500 people own the business, and they set their their salaries and if or their profit they get to keep it and or they get to say what happens to that profit and right now the co-op development fund cdf has taken on themselves to have an annual meeting uh, i think it's in august but they have a lot of information and they have some startup money for that too that they help people I don't know if it's in some kind of contest or not, but they help folks start up these co-ops. Yeah, no, um, I wish my coworker, Caitlin, so we're in a co-directorship with Caitlin Kondrat. She's the one on our team who's really leading. Mm-hmm. And Caitlin, yeah, Caitlin would be able to tell you about our um, our work and our contract partnership, really, with New Mexico <laughs> Aging and Long-Term Services Department. And that also includes their workforce solutions. So they're investing approximately $1 million, um, into supporting caregiver co-ops um, to launch in rural areas of the state. So we're seeing a strong signal. The climate is changing here in the Southwest, and there are numerous entities locally and within the government that are um, vested in seeing this model succeed. So we're really excited and happy to be part of that. Um, and at some point, I would love to have her on to talk about it. We're going to come right back and talk about that and what else is going to happen in the future. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody. The program is Everything Co-op. And before we took a br- break, uh, Ruth Begay and I were talking about having uh, the the name of the it's called home health care. Okay, that's what I was looking for. So I just went to CDF dot co-op. That's the Corporate Development Foundation's webpage, and they had their fifth annual National Home Health Care Conference. It was February the twenty second through the twenty sixth. So I said August. I was mistaken. And so I assume this coming February they'll have another home health care. And it was free for home uh, care op- cooperative caregivers and administrators. And so last year it was virtual. And years before that it was in in Virginia. 
So if it's virtual again, then you all could uh, be a part of that, and that seems to be a great place of getting knowledge of how you do home health care cooperatives. There is a lot of information around to help with all of the things that you're talking about, child care, you call it age living, home health care is, is, is the term for that industry, food co-ops, this up and coming, water, energy. It seemed like the rural electric co-ops would be really helpful because they'll go out into rural areas. They've created a rural electric co-ops, but also in in foreign countries, um, seemed like they would want to come in and help with the Navajo country in, in creating power and solar power and broadband. So do you all have broadband in Navajo Nation? We don't. That's another, another need. We need it all. Um, we're looking at Starlink right now, actually and what kind of um, access we can get there. But that was a huge challenge during the pandemic with kids going to school, people having jobs, maintaining those jobs. We had the buses actually, they would come out with um, a little booster so you could park next to the bus so that you could do your homework. And my kids did that for a little while. But yeah, no, access to broadband is also zero infrastructure. You name it, we need it. So I can I really see where this co-op um, model can help revitalize or even create the kind of community that you want that the Navajo I'm Nation excited. people want. I am really excited about the opportunity that co-ops have, and to me, it's close to home. It really does hit close to home. The capitalist model does not suit our communities. We've seen that through exploitation, unfortunately. And um, I think it's an opportunity for community voice and for community really to shape where we want to go, how we want to develop. And, um, you know, the uh, interesting part of the work, and I'm just, I'm just a fly on the wall. Again, my coworker, Caitlin, is really leading that project around um, the age living with ALTSD. But the desire for folks who are looking at long-term care to stay within their homes. What options can we provide? And that the government is really looking to support that voice and hearing people that they don't wanna be in nursing homes. You know, What kind of additional services can we provide and provide to the care workers, you know, caretakers themselves? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I, I, didn't, I mentioned about values before, but the values of cooperation in principles is what I like, and I, I go first when somebody calls themselves a co-op to see how are you how are they doing with the ethical values of honesty, openness, social responsibility, and caring for others. I put caring for one another, which is the golden rule, which most faith-based organizations have. And I find in whether it's native or Zuni or African tribes or clans or Pueblos, whatever you call them, this caring for others was at the center of life. And if it wasn't for this community where everybody knew what their role was, if it wasn't for community, uh, we wouldn't be here because I, I have it. That's the core of humanity is working together and supporting each other, caring for one another. And when I was asking you about your values, is, is that in, at the core of, of the Navajo Nation's values also? Caring for one I would another. Think so I think culturally, you know, we really focus on family. 
we have this concept of eh, which is about family. Our clan system is rooted in finding relations. So all of my relations, you know, we are very much um, what is in the best interest of community. And that's one of the things that I love about cooperative principles, concern for community. And um, it fits it fits within our traditional value system beautifully. It also has the flexibility that we need um, that you don't find in other economic models. And um, I think it's also about creating intergenerational wealth. Yes. That's a, you know, part of the, what we're trying to create is how do we get our children into these systems that are going to provide long-term you know, resources for them that they can tap into. Um, that's not just, you know, one person had one idea around this one business and it just benefits that individual. You know, we're, we're developing communities really from the ground up with the cooperative model. So in Puerto Rico, I had on the show once that they have had co-ops in schools. I think it was for 60 years they've had co-ops in schools. And at the time, which was about four years ago, they had 54 different co-ops within schools from elementary school through college where the students owned the business and they learned how to work together and have board meetings and do all the kinds of things that you need to do in business. And so I've been talking about that model. would like to see if we could get that model out there where even in Navajo Nation you could get these co-ops, not only the co-ops that the adults would have formed and run, but where the students could have um, – where they they sell the supplies, uh, school supplies or candies, uh, not candy as much as some kind of a food co-op within the school systems. But um, a co-op that provides some kind of computer learning or training or um, there's all kinds of possibilities in this. And I'd like to see it get into the school system. Have you all thought about that? Yeah, that's a really exciting point. Um, our schools really do focus on trades skills. Um, we have at the high school, there's a child care certification program. There's also a nursing program. So when you come out of high school, you should have a certification to go straight into the market. So that was part of the conversation that um, Caitlin and I were having around aging and long-term care, you know, that there are going to be job opportunities for people right out of of the gate, you know, that they would have the skill set and that they would be business owners. That's really exciting as Absolutely. a young person. Absolutely. Yeah, but <laughs> you could come out and you could be a part of this business. You could own it. You could have a voice in it. You're not just coming out of the gate working for this industry and working your way up. You know, we trust that they have the skill set and now they have the ability to build on their wealth. And, you know, and that feeds into the community in a beautiful way. It's something that we need. It's something that we value. And um, it's cyclic. And I love that. I absolutely love co-ops. I cannot say enough about it. I am really excited. <laughs> and part two of, that, of us. <laughs> you know, the, the downside of this, um, talking about the Bennett freeze, is there was no infrastructure. There was no access. But the upside is it gave us a blank slate. And we have this blank slate to now use cooperatives to really shape and form our communities. And we're looking at, we don't have to walk through or remedy the capitalist market per se, because there is no infrastructure. And I'm really excited to see where we go in the next three to 10 to 20 years with this with this initiative. So I really like the trade skills, nursing, childcare, 
fixing cars, construction, all of the different trades and constructions, uh, accounting, uh, different things in computers, advertising, uh, creating um, copy. So the students could be long to a co-op that's inside the school or that's in the school and outside so that they're working with the co-op of adults that are in the community and the children are learning and working and they then not only do they have a job but they're part of an owner when they graduate. This is happening in the jail systems uh, and penal systems. There's one in Italy that's a bakery and the folks there are in the system and the, the jails are working in the bakeries and so when they get out, they don't go back to jail because they have a family to go to, just like you talked about. They have a job that they go to. They have skills that they already have. So um, this, this co-op thing works. It works. Where do you want to be in, uh, you said, 10 years, 5, 10, 20 years? Um, I have this dream, and I am very grandiose. But there is going to be a utopia that is just co-ops, um, providing housing, providing electricity, all of those basic necessities. And I'm going to try not to cry right now <laughs> because I cannot tell you um, for the hope that I feel using this model in my community after you see how much challenge and how hard it has been, how hard we've been hit by the pandemic and to find something that feels tangible to feel, you know, something that fits within our community values, I truly believe, and I know for a fact, we're going to, we're going to build the utopia of co-ops <laughs> on the Navajo Nation and um, be a leading voice for that. I want to come out and visit you. Uh, I'd like to see what I can do to help you with that. Uh, I'm excited and got chills. Not only when I cry, but just excited about this utopia of cooperatives in the Navajo Nation. Thank you so very much. Thank Have you a- for having me wonderful have a wonderful day enjoy your children and for everybody out there please live cooperatively and we'll see you next thursday where we'll honor chuck snyder